Hello, and welcome to Learning by Literary Audio Files, or Learning Be Lit AF. My name is Theoden Humphrey. I'm a high school English teacher, currently on summer break, having just finished my 20th year working in the classroom. But it didn't really end, did it? This year, 2020, has been the strangest school year of my recollection. And that recollection spans four decades, because, you see, I started school when I was four, in a daycare head start sort of deal, then from kindergarten through 12th grade, from 5 to 18. After I graduated high school, I went straight to college, where I stayed for seven years. Three years at junior college, two at university to get my degree. Actually, about a year and two-thirds, because I only needed five trimesters to complete my bachelor's. I finished in March instead of May. And then two and a half years to earn my teaching credential. And when I finished my certification in December... In January, I started subbing, and in August, I got my first full-time teaching position. I haven't stopped since. My point is that I'm turning 46 in about a month, and ever since I was four years old, my longest span of time out of a classroom was between finishing my bachelor's in March of 1997 and starting grad school in August. So, when I say this was the strangest school year of my recollection, that's 42 years. All hail the blessed number. It feels like it didn't end. We didn't have the usual unbearably long stretch of days after spring break, leading up to the enormous pressure of finals and exam season, state tests and AP tests and all of that. I didn't have any complaints about grades, because my school, quite rightly, decided to hold students harmless in the quarantine, meaning that the grade they had earned before the shutdown in March was the lowest grade they could get. They could only improve it with work in the last quarter, while we were doing distance learning while I was doing these podcasts. I had students who did work, some who did quite a lot of very good work, but a number of them were satisfied with the grade they had, and they did nothing. And though it did make me a little sad, because I want them to read and write for the joy of reading and writing, I certainly don't blame them. I absolutely would have seen these last two months as an extended vacation had this happened while I was in high school. I would have majored in watching TV and playing Nintendo. But the point is... I haven't even talked to several of my students for months now. And the school year ended, but we didn't have prom, and we didn't have the senior trip, and we didn't have graduation. The year just sort of stumbled to a halt, and then slowly sank into oblivion. Nothing resolved. Nothing completed. Thinking about that recently gave me an idea. There are some wonderful stories and poems that, like this past school year, don't really have an ending. They, too, stumble to a halt, or even drop you right off a cliff. Intentionally, of course, though there are some famous works that are simply unfinished. But in several famous and interesting examples, the authors chose to leave the plotline unresolved. I think we will read those. So, for the next few episodes, I have six pieces in mind, four short stories and two poems. We're going to be looking at stories that never end. First up is one of my all-time favorite stories, one I actually read this year in several of my classes, both before and after the quarantine started. The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs. This one is iconic. It's the source of a trope that has been used in everything from The Twilight Zone, Creepshow, Tales from the Crypt, to The Simpsons, Rick and Morty, and The Monkeys. It is considered by some to be, spoiler alert, one of the first zombie stories. And, of course, it is beautifully crafted and written, which is a lot of why it has had such influence and staying power. In literary terms, while the ending is an extremely interesting choice, which we will discuss, the real glory of the story is in the foreshadowing, 
which is masterful. We'll talk about that too. But first, we should just read it. As always, I recommend you have a paper copy or an editable on-screen copy of the story in front of you while we read and discuss this. You're much more likely to notice things when you can read along with me. Use your eyes and your ears as two different inputs. I got my copy from Project Gutenberg. I'll include a link in the episode description. You can't edit that website, of course, but you can copy-paste the story into a document that you can take notes on. And if you want to get the most out of the conversation of this story, you should. Though, of course, if you're just listening because you think this is fun, well, I can't tell you you're wrong. I think it's fun, too. So, let's have some fun. The Monkey's Paw 1. Without, the night was cold and wet, but in the small parlor of Laburnum Villa, the blinds were drawn and the fire burned brightly. Father and son were at chess, the former, who possessed ideas about the game involving radical changes, putting his king into such sharp and unnecessary perils that it even provoked comment from the white-haired old lady knitting placidly by the fire. Hark at the wind, said Mr. White, who, having seen a fatal mistake after it was too late, was amiably desirous of preventing his son from seeing it. I'm listening, said the latter, grimly surveying the board as he stretched out his hand. Check. I should hardly think that he'd come tonight, said his father, with his hand poised over the board. Mate, replied the son. That's the worst of living so far out, bawled Mr. White, with sudden and unlooked-for violence. Of all the beastly, slushy, out-of-the-way places to live in, this is the worst. Pathways are bog, and the road's a torrent. I don't know what people are thinking about. I suppose because only two houses in the road are let, they think it doesn't matter. Never mind, dear, said his wife soothingly. Perhaps you'll win the next one. Mr. White looked up sharply, just in time to intercept a knowing glance between mother and son. The words died away on his lips, and he hid a guilty grin in his thin gray beard. There he is, said Herbert White, as the gate banged to loudly and heavy footsteps came toward the door. The old man rose with hospitable haste, and opening the door, was heard condoling with the new arrival. The new arrival also condoled with himself, so that Mrs. White said, Tut, tut! and coughed gently as her husband entered the room, followed by a tall, burly man, beady of eye and rubicund of visage. Sergeant Major Morris, he said, introducing him. The Sergeant Major shook hands, and taking the proffered seat by the fire, watched contentedly while his host got out whiskey and tumblers and stood a small copper kettle on the fire. At the third glass, his eyes got brighter, and he began to talk the little family circle regarding with eager interest this visitor from distant parts, as he squared his broad shoulders in the chair and spoke of wild scenes and dotty deeds, of wars and plagues and strange peoples. Twenty-one years of it,' said Mr. White, nodding at his wife and son. "'When he went away, he was a slip of a youth in the warehouse. "'Now look at him!' "'He don't look to have taken much harm,' said Mrs. White politely." I'd like to go to India myself, said the old man, just to look around a bit, you know. Better where you are, said the sergeant major, shaking his head. He put down the empty glass and, sighing softly, shook it again. I should like to see those old temples and fakirs and jugglers, said the old man. What was that you started telling me the other day about a monkey's paw or something, Morris? Nothing, said the soldier hastily. Leastways, nothing worth hearing. 
Monkey's paw? said Mrs. White curiously. Well, it's just a bit of what you might call magic, perhaps, said the sergeant major offhandedly. His three listeners leaned forward eagerly. The visitor absent-mindedly put his empty glass to his lips and then set it down again. His host filled it for him. To look at, said the sergeant major, fumbling in his pocket, it's just an ordinary little paw, dried to a mummy. He took something out of his pocket and proffered it. Mrs. White drew back with a grimace, but her son, taking it, examined it curiously. "'And what is there special about it?' inquired Mr. White, as he took it from his son, and having examined it, placed it upon the table. "'It had a spell put on it by an old fakir,' said the sergeant major, "'a very holy man. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives, and that those who interfered with it did so to their sorrow.' He put a spell on it so that three separate men could each have three wishes from it. His manner was so impressive that his hearers were conscious that their light laughter jarred somewhat. "'Well, why don't you have three, sir?' said Herbert White cleverly. The soldier regarded him in the way that middle age is wont to regard presumptuous youth. "'I have,' he said quietly, and his blotchy face whitened. "'And did you really have the three wishes granted?' asked Mrs. White. "'I did,' said the sergeant major, and his glass tapped against his strong teeth. "'And has anybody else wished?' persisted the old lady. "'The first man had his three wishes?' "'Yes,' was the reply. "'I don't know what the first two were, but the third was for death. "'That's how I got the paw.' His tones were so grave that a hush fell upon the group. "'If you've had your three wishes, it's no good to you now, then, Morris,' said the old man at last. "'What do you keep it for?' The soldier shook his head. "'Fancy, I suppose,' he said slowly. "'I did have some idea of selling it, but I don't think I will. It has caused enough mischief already. Besides, people won't buy.' They think it's a fairy tale, some of them, and those who do think anything of it want to try it first and pay me afterward. If you could have another three wishes, said the old man, eyeing him keenly, would you have them? I don't know, said the other. I don't know. He took the paw and, dangling it between his forefinger and thumb, suddenly threw it upon the fire. White, with a slight cry, stooped down and snatched it off. Better let it burn said the soldier solemnly if you don't want it morris said the other give it to me i won't said his friend doggedly i threw it on the fire if you keep it don't blame me for what happens pitch it on the fire again like a sensible man the other shook his head and examined his new possession closely how do you do it he inquired hold it up in your right hand and wish aloud said the sergeant major but i warn you of the consequences. Sounds like the Arabian Nights, said Mrs. White, as she rose and began to set the supper. Don't you think you might wish for four pairs of hands for me? Her husband drew the talisman from his pocket, and then all three burst into laughter, as the sergeant major, with a look of alarm on his face, caught him by the arm. If you must wish, he said gruffly, wish for something sensible. Mr. White dropped it back in his pocket, and placing chairs, motioned his friend to the table. 
In the business of supper, the talisman was partly forgotten, and afterward the three sat listening in an enthralled fashion to a second installment of the soldier's adventures in India. "'If the tale about the monkey's paw is not more truthful than those he has been telling us,' said Herbert, as the door closed behind their guest, just in time for him to catch the last train, "'we shan't make much out of it.' "'Did you give him anything for it, father?' inquired Mrs. White, regarding her husband closely. "'A trifle,' said he, coloring slightly. "'He didn't want it, but I made him take it, and he pressed me again to throw it away.' "'Likely,' said Herbert with pretended horror. "'Why, we're going to be rich and famous and happy. "'Wish to be an emperor, father, to begin with. "'Then you can't be henpecked.' "'He darted round the table, pursued by the maligned Mrs. White, "'armed with an antimacassar. "'Mr. White took the paw from his pocket and eyed it dubiously. "'I don't know what to wish for, and that's a fact,' he said slowly. "'It seems to me I've got all I want.' "'If you only cleared the house, you'd be quite happy, wouldn't you?' said Herbert, with, a hand, with his hand on his shoulder. "'Well, wish for two hundred pounds, then. That'll just do it.' His father, smiling shamefacedly at his own credulity, held up the talisman as his son, with a solemn face, somewhat marred by a wink at his mother, sat down at the piano and struck a few impressive chords. "'I wish for two hundred pounds,' said the old man distinctly. A fine crash from the piano greeted the words, interrupted by a shuddering cry from the old man. His wife and son ran toward him. It moved, he cried, with a glance of disgust at the object as it lay on the floor. As I wished, it twisted in my hand like a snake. Well, I don't see the money, said his son as he picked it up and placed it on the table. And I bet I never shall. "'It must have been your fancy, father,' said his wife, regarding him anxiously. "'He shook his head. "'Never mind, though. There's no harm done, but it gave me a shock all the same.' "'They sat down by the fire again while the two men finished their pipes. "'Outside, the wind was higher than ever, "'and the old man started nervously at the sound of a door banging upstairs. "'A silence, unusual and depressing, settled upon all three which lasted until the old couple rose to retire for the night. "'I expect you'll find the cash tied up in a big bag in the middle of your bed,' said Herbert as he bade them good night. "'And something horrible squatting up on top of the wardrobe, watching you as you pocket your ill-gotten gains.' He sat alone in the darkness, gazing at the dying fire and seeing faces in it. The last face was so horrible and so simian that he gazed at it in amazement. It got so vivid that, with a little uneasy laugh, he felt on the table for a glass containing a little water to throw over it. His hand grasped the monkey's paw, and with a little shiver he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. 2. In the brightness of the wintry sun next morning, as it streamed over the breakfast table, he laughed at his fears. There was an air of prosaic wholesomeness about the room, which it had lacked on the previous night, and the dirty, shriveled little paw was pitched on the sideboard with a carelessness which betokened no great belief in its virtues. "'I suppose all old soldiers are the same,' said Mrs. White. "'The idea of our listening to such nonsense!' 
How could wishes be granted in these days? And if they could, how could two hundred pounds hurt you, father? My drop on his head from the sky, said the frivolous Herbert. Morris said the things happened so naturally, said his father, that you might, if you so wished, attribute it to coincidence. Well, don't break into the money before I come back, said Herbert as he rose from the table. I'm afraid it'll turn you into a mean, avaricious man, and we shall have to disown you. His mother laughed, and following him to the door, watched him down the road, and returning to the breakfast table, was very happy at the expense of her husband's credulity, all of which did not prevent her from scurrying to the door at the postman's knock, nor prevent her from referring somewhat shortly to retired sergeant-majors of bibulous habits when she found that the post brought a tailor's bill. "'Herbert will have some more of his funny remarks, I expect, when he comes home,' she said as they sat at dinner. "'I dare say,' said Mr. White, pouring himself out some beer. "'But for all that, the thing moved in my hand. That I'll swear to.' "'You thought it did,' said the old lady soothingly. "'I say it did,' replied the other. "'There was no thought about it. "'I had just... "'What's the matter?' "'His wife made no reply. "'She was watching the mysterious movements of a man outside, "'who, peering in an undecided fashion at the house, "'appeared to be trying to make up his mind to enter. "'In mental connection with the two hundred pounds, "'she noticed that the stranger was well-dressed "'and wore a silk hat of glossy newness.' Three times he paused at the gate, and then walked on again. The fourth time he stood with his hand upon it, and then with sudden resolution flung it open and walked up the path. Mrs. White, at the same moment, placed her hands behind her, and hurriedly unfastening the strings of her apron, put that useful article of apparel beneath the cushion of her chair. She brought the stranger, who seemed ill at ease, into the room. He gazed at her furtively, and listened in a preoccupied fashion as the old lady apologized for the appearance of the room, and her husband's coat, a garment which he usually reserved for the garden. She then waited as patiently as her sex would permit for him to broach his business, but he was at first strangely silent. "'I was asked to call,' he said at last, and stooped and picked a piece of cotton from his trousers." "'I come from Ma and Megan's.' "'The old lady started. "'Is anything the matter?' she asked breathlessly. "'Has anything happened to Herbert? "'What is it? What is it?' "'Her husband interposed. "'There, there, mother,' he said hastily. "'Sit down, and don't jump to conclusions. "'You've not brought bad news, I'm sure, sir.' "'And he eyed the other wistfully. "'I'm sorry,' began the visitor. "'Is he hurt?' demanded the mother wildly. The visitor bowed in assent. Badly hurt, he said quietly, but he is not in any pain. Oh, thank God, said the old woman, clasping her hands. Thank God for that. Thank. She broke off suddenly as the sinister meaning of the assurance dawned upon her, and she saw the awful confirmation of her fears in the other's averted face. She caught her breath, and turning to her slower-witted husband, laid her trembling old hand upon his. There was a long silence. He was caught in the machinery, 
said the visitor at length, in a low voice. "'Cotton, the machinery,' repeated Mr. White, in a dazed fashion. "'Yes.' He sat staring blankly out at the window, and taking his wife's hand between his own, he pressed it as he had been wont to do in their old courting days nearly forty years before. "'He was the only one left to us,' he said, turning gently to the visitor. "'It is hard.' The other coughed, and rising, walked slowly to the window. "'The firm wished me to convey their sincere sympathy with you in your great loss,' he said, without looking round. "'I beg that you will understand I am only their servant, and merely obeying orders.' There was no reply. The old woman's face was white, her eyes staring, and her breath inaudible. On the husband's face was a look such as his friend the sergeant might have carried into his first action. "'I was to say that Ma and Megan's disclaim all responsibility,' continued the other. "'They admit no liability at all. "'But in consideration of your son's services, "'they wish to present you with a certain sum as compensation.' Mr. White dropped his wife's hand, and rising to his feet gazed with a look of horror at his visitor. His dry lips shaped the word, "'How much?' Two hundred pounds was the answer. Unconscious of his wife's shriek, the old man smiled faintly, put out his hands like a sightless man, and dropped a senseless heap to the floor. Three. In the huge new cemetery, some two miles distant, the old people buried their dead and came back to a house steeped in shadow and silence. It was all over so quickly that at first they could hardly realize it, and remained in a state of expectation as though of something else to happen, something else which was to lighten this load, too heavy for old hearts to bear. But the days passed, and expectation gave place to resignation the hopeless resignation of the old, sometimes miscalled apathy. Sometimes they hardly exchanged a word, for now they had nothing to talk about, and their days were long to weariness. It was about a week after that that the old man, waking suddenly in the night, stretched out his hand and found himself alone. The room was in darkness, and the sound of subdued weeping came from the window. He raised himself in bed and listened. "'Come back,' he said tenderly. "'You will be cold.' "'It is colder for my son,' said the old woman, and wept afresh. The sound of her sobs died away on his ears. The bed was warm, and his eyes heavy with sleep. He dozed fitfully, and then slept until a sudden, wild cry from his wife awoke him with a start. "'The paw!' she cried wildly. "'The monkey's paw!' He started up in alarm. "'Where? Where is it? What's the matter?' She came stumbling across the room toward him. "'I want it,' she said quietly. "'You've not destroyed it?' "'It's in the parlor, on the bracket,' he replied, marveling. "'Why?' 
She cried and laughed together, and bending over, kissed his cheek. I only just thought of it, she said hysterically. Why didn't I think of it before? Why didn't you think of it? Think of what, he questioned. The other two wishes, she replied rapidly. We've only had one. Was not that enough? he demanded fiercely. No, she cried triumphantly. We'll have one more. Go down and get it quickly and wish our boy alive again. The man sat up in bed and flung the bedclothes from his quaking limbs. Good God, you are mad, he cried aghast. Get it, she panted. Get it quickly and wish. Oh, my boy, my boy. Her husband struck a match and lit the candle. Get back to bed, he said unsteadily. You don't know what you are saying. We had the first wish granted, said the old woman feverishly. Why not the second? A coincidence, stammered the old man. Go and get it and wish, cried his wife, quivering with excitement. The old man turned and regarded her, and his voice shook. He has been dead ten days, and besides, he... I would not tell you else, but I could only recognize him by his clothing. If he was too terrible for you to see then, how now? Bring him back, cried the old woman and dragged him toward the door. Do you think I fear the child I have nursed? He went down in the darkness and felt his way to the parlor and then to the mantelpiece. The talisman was in its place and a horrible fear that the unspoken wish might bring his mutilated son before him ere he could escape from the room seized upon him, and he caught his breath as he found that he had lost the direction of the door. His brow cold with sweat, he felt his way round the table and groped along the wall until he found himself in the small passage with the unwholesome thing in his hand. Even his wife's face seemed changed as he entered the room. It was white and expectant, and to his fears seemed to have an unnatural look upon it. He was afraid of her. "'Wish!' she cried in a strong voice. "'It is foolish and wicked,' he faltered. "'Wish!' repeated his wife. He raised his hand. "'I wish my son alive again.' The talisman fell to the floor, and he regarded it fearfully. Then he sank, trembling into a chair, as the old woman, with burning eyes, walked to the window and raised the blind. He sat until he was chilled with the cold, glancing occasionally at the figure of the old woman peering through the window. The candle end, which had burned below the rim of the china candlestick, was throwing pulsating shadows on the ceiling and walls, until, with a flicker larger than the rest, it expired. The old man, with an unspeakable sense of relief at the failure of the talisman, crept back to his bed, and a minute or two afterward, the old woman came silently and apathetically beside him. Neither spoke, but lay silently listening to the ticking of the clock. A stair creaked, and a squeaky mouse scurried noisily through the wall. The darkness was oppressive, and after lying for some time screwing up his courage, he took the box of matches, and striking one, went downstairs for a candle. At the foot of the stairs, the match went out, and he paused to strike another, and at the same moment, a knock, so quiet and stealthy as to be scarcely audible, sounded 
on the front door. The matches fell from his hand and spilled in the passage. He stood motionless, his breath suspended, until the knock was repeated. Then he turned and fled swiftly back to his room and closed the door behind him. A third knock sounded through the house. "'What's that?' cried the old woman, starting up. "'A rat!' said the old man in shaking tones. "'A rat! It passed me on the stairs!' His wife sat up in bed, listening. A loud knock resounded through the house. "'It's Herbert!' she screamed. "'It's Herbert!' She ran to the door, but her husband was before her, and catching her by the arm, held her tightly. "'What are you going to do?' he whispered hoarsely. "'It's my boy! It's Herbert!' she cried, struggling mechanically. "'I forgot! It was two miles away! What are you holding me for? Let go! I must open the door!' "'For God's sake, don't let it in!' cried the old man, trembling. "'You're afraid of your own son!' she cried, struggling. "'Let me go! I'm coming, Herbert! I'm coming!' There was another knock, and another. The old woman, with a sudden wrench, broke free and ran from the room. Her husband followed to the landing and called after her appealingly as she hurried downstairs. He heard the chain rattle back and the bottom bolt drawn slowly and stiffly from the socket. Then the old woman's voice, strained and panting, "'The bolt!' she cried loudly. "'Come down! I can't reach it!' But her husband was on his hands and knees, groping wildly on the floor in search of the paw. If he could only find it before the thing outside got in! A perfect fusillade of knocks reverberated through the house, and he heard the scraping of a chair as his wife put it down in the passage against the door. He heard the creaking of the bolt as it came slowly back, and at the same moment he found the monkey's paw and frantically breathed his third and last wish. The knocking ceased suddenly, although the echoes of it were still in the house. He heard the chair drawn back, and the door opened. A cold wind rushed up the staircase, and a long, loud wail of disappointment and misery from his wife gave him courage to run down to her side and then to the gate beyond. The street lamp flickering opposite shone on a quiet and deserted road. Okay. Let's run through some vocabulary real quick, because if you can't understand the words, you can't understand the story, and because words are fun. Okay, sure, I'm biased. If you prefer, go ahead and mute this for about the next 45 seconds or so, and then just make up your own meanings for the words you're not sure about. Placidly means calmly, peacefully, unexcitedly. Amiably means in a friendly and easygoing manner. Condoled and condoling are to express sympathy for someone to grieve with. It's related to the word condolences. Rubicund, having a red or, red or ruddy complexion. Fakir is a Muslim or, in this instance, an Indian or Hindu holy man. Uh, a hermit, usually. Often seen as having magic powers. Dotty means brave and persistent. Want to regard presumptuous youth. Want means in the habit of doing something, accustomed to it. And presumptuous means failing to observe the limits of what is permitted or appropriate. A talisman is an object with magical powers or good luck. 
An antimacassar is a piece of cloth put over the back of a chair to protect it from a dirt or as an ornament, so like a doily. Simeon means ape-like or monkey-like. Credulity is a tendency to be too ready to believe that something is real or true, so almost gullibility. Avaricious means showing extreme greed for material gain. Bibulous means excessively fond of drinking alcohol. Great word. Prosaic means commonplace or unromantic. Furtively means trying to avoid attention, especially as if guilty of something. Interposed means to place oneself between two things, as between two people. Apathy and apathetically. Apathy is a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern. And apathetically is in a manner showing that. A bracket is a support attached to a wall for holding up a shelf or a lamp or other object. Here it means a mantelpiece over a fireplace. A fusillade is a series of shots fired or missiles thrown all at the same time or in quick succession. And reverberated means echoed. Okay, so let's talk about what's going on here. First of all, just in terms of the tone of the piece and the foreshadowing, it is everywhere in here. Every part of this works on this tone. The buildup of this ominous, deadly tone is what makes the ending possible. Jacobs doesn't need to show us the actual thing outside the door because we've already pictured it. And we've already been primed to believe it is the worst possible thing. He does that with tone and foreshadowing. Right from the beginning of the story, which takes place, no joke, on a dark and stormy night. By the way, the cliche of opening a novel or story with the phrase, it was a dark and stormy night, hails back to a novel called Paul Clifford by the English novelist Edward Bulwer-Lytton. There used to be a writing contest named after the author in the sentence. If you ever get a chance to look it up, I highly recommend it. The entries are brilliant. Right from the get-go, too, we start getting some hints of, not necessarily danger, but risk. Because the father and son, Mr. White and Herbert White, are playing chess. And Mr. White, quote, possessed ideas about the game involving radical changes, putting his king into such sharp and unnecessary perils that it even provoked comment from the white-haired old lady knitting placidly by the fire. So, from the first paragraph, we have an impression that Mr. White is willing to take risks and break rules and go for the gusto, and also risk the most important piece, right? The most important person. But also, he fails. He loses this game. It's turned into a joke as he tries to distract his family from his imminent defeat, and his exaggerated anger directed at the weather and the road they live on reflect his irritation at his loss in the chess game. We also get an impression from here of how close and loving this family is, how happy they are with each other, teasing each other, joking and laughing particularly the mother and son, who exchange knowing looks in this moment and other expressions of their close bond later in the story. But even in this sweet scene, still sweet even when their guest arrives, there are a bunch of little moments of maybe a little bit darker tone. Some words that seem not to fit the sweetness. Their laughter dies, and then you have this moment of their joy being not appropriate for what's going on, right? So there's like a, a disconnect between how nice this family is and the situation, which is much darker than that, because that's right when uh, Morris starts talking about his experiences. Mr. White, it says, he hides a guilty grin in his thin gray beard. What's he feel guilty about? I mean, he was just, you know, joking about not, uh, not really joking, but sort of trying to distract them from losing his chess game. 
by guilty, right? I mean, what is this, this, this word that seems overdone here for this, this moment? When Sergeant Major Morris arrives, he and Mr. White condole over the weather. But condolences are what we offer when someone has passed away, not when someone's wet from the rain. So there's contrast, which is not very prominent at first. That's part of how Jacob sets up what's going to happen in this story. We have a sense of a sweet family with some kind of shadow falling over them. And maybe it is Mr. White's fault. Though that's also a larger question we'll get into when we talk about the theme, the question of fault. Things really start to get strange when Morris arrives. At first he seems fine. He drinks too much, but he's got good stories from his time in India. His first weird statement is when he tries to dissuade Mr. White from vacationing in India without any specifics. Better where you are, he says sighing over his empty whiskey glass, which he does more than once. But why? Should the Whites not even go to India at all? Why not? The statement, is of, the statement, of course, is more about the larger theme of changing one's fate. This little throwaway line is giving us Morris's position on the whole thing, that you are better off accepting where you are than trying to change it. Then he busts out the monkey paw. Now, I have some questions. First of all, why did he take the paw? The first man had his three wishes. Yes, was the reply. I don't know what the first two were, but the third was for death. That's how I got the paw. Why would you take that? What possible stronger warning could there be? Why would you wish on it if you know the first guy, the wishes led to him wishing for death? Is that what you want? Then again... The Whites hear the same warning, and also Morris's personal warning on top of that, and yet they not only take the paw, but they make wishes on the paw. So, I'd guess that some part of the point in the story is the sheer impossible arrogance of humans, who think we can control things that we absolutely cannot control, and believe that bad things only happen to other people, even when it, it is our own actions that cause those bad things. But I have other questions. Why, knowing that the paw is evil, does he not destroy it before this evening? He throws it on the fire, but why didn't he do that a month ago? Why does he take it out of his pocket and show it to the whites? Why did he bring it with him to dinner? And if he did bring it to dinner, why not deny that he has it on him? Part of the answer is that Mr. White brings it up, so it's not Morris alone. But White says that Morris had mentioned it to him the last time they spoke. So it was Morris who broached this subject in the first place. Obviously, he wants the Whites to take the paw. Now, an easy answer is the one that actually comes from the monkeys episode about a cursed monkey's paw. The one who suffers the curse has to pass the paw on to someone else in order to break the curse. But none of that is mentioned in this story. So from what we see here... Either Morris is cruel or has a grudge against the Whites for some reason, or he agrees with a fakir who put the spell on the paw in the first place, and Morris wants someone else to learn the lesson about trying to change one's fate. That one seems to fit better than the idea that he hates the Whites. He clearly wants to enjoy their company, and his comment about better where you are maybe implies that he believes people should accept their fate. Although maybe he's learned that from the paw and didn't believe it beforehand. Anyway. So, okay, we'll take that as the answer. He wants the, the, the whites to take the paw. He wants them to learn the lesson. He clearly puts on a show intended to tempt the whites. 
even acting like the paw is serious and dangerous and no laughing matter, definitely gives the impression that its power is real. Maybe from there, human nature takes over and people will definitely wish on the paw, thinking they can game the system. And really, that's probably true. Almost everyone I know has thought about their strategy for making wishes, how they could make a safe wish, or how they could trick the genie into giving them infinite wishes, or whatever. The whites try to pick out a wish that would do no harm, so they can safely gain what they want without paying the price. I have to point out from a literary analysis standpoint how impressive this story is, because Jacobs is able to depict all of this characterization, Morris, who wants to pass on the paw, the whites who are maybe too reckless to, but basically harmless, and so on. It's beautifully done. He's able to say it without saying any of it directly. There's an important moment for creating both of these impressions, that of the whites being a bit reckless but also basically harmless, when Morris leaves and the whites discuss the paw and the wishes. In just a few paragraphs, we find out Mr. White gave Morris money for the paw, insisting even when he refused it. He doesn't brag about giving the money. His wife knew him well enough to know that he would have done that. Their son teases them both by telling his father to wish to be an emperor to avoid being henpecked, which means nagged by his wife. And then Herbert's mother chases him around the room, whacking him with a doily. This is an adorable domestic scene. And in the middle of it, of course, Mr. White makes an important statement. I don't know what to wish for, and that's a fact, he said slowly. It seems to me I've got all I want. That's the point. Though we can see how someone who thinks that way can be led to make a wish anyway, because there's always something you want, right? Notice that it's Herbert who suggests it. And notice that Herbert doesn't ask for the wish to benefit him, but to gain something nice for his parents, because he's a sweet and devoted son. But maybe on some level, because he's the one who suggests the wish, he's the one who then suffers the consequences, at least partly, right? But then they make the choice, they do the thing, they wish. And immediately, look at the foreshadowing. It moved, he cried, with a glance of disgust at the object as it lay on the floor. As I wished, it twisted in my hand like a snake. Right? Twisted. So it's going to twist his words. It's going to twist fate. It's going to twist things. And like a snake. So it's something that is venomous and also dangerous and, you know, classically like deceptive and represents betrayal. Well, I don't see the money, said his son as he picked it up and placed it on the table. And I bet I never shall. And I mean, dang, because no... Herbert never sees the money. It must have been your fancy, father, said his wife, regarding him anxiously. So see, she's anxious already. So she is not blowing him off. Because if she was blowing him off, she wouldn't look at him anxiously. So she sees something there that is disturbing in, in her husband. Um, and she's trying to pretend that it's not serious. But of course it is. He shook his head. Never mind, though. There's no harm done. But it gave me a shock all the same. They sat down by the fire again while the two men finished their pipes. Outside, the wind was higher than ever, and the old man started nervously at the sound of a door banging upstairs. Which, we don't realize it here, but it foreshadows the knocking, of course, as Herbert returns. A silence, unusual and depressing, settled upon all three, which lasted until the old couple rose to retire for the night. 
I expect you'll find the cash tied up in a big bag in the middle of your bed, said Herbert as he bade them goodnight, and something horrible squatting up on top of the wardrobe, watching you as you pocket your ill-gotten gains. And of course, that's what happens, right? I mean, the cash is handed to them, not necessarily in a big bag on their bed, but still, it's handed to them without them having even to go out and get it. And there is something horrible that comes along with it. And the idea that something is watching fits really well. This idea of either the fakir who put on the curse, but the, the, the spell on the monkey's paw, or maybe fate itself. I love the idea of it squatting on top of the wardrobe watching. That's cool. And then this paragraph. He sat alone in the darkness, gazing at the dying fire and seeing faces in it. The last face was so horrible and so simian that he gazed at it in amazement. It got so vivid that, with a little uneasy laugh, he felt on the table for a glass containing a little water to throw over it. His hand grasped the monkey's paw, and with a little shiver, he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. So, darkness, dying fire, faces in the fire that are horrible and simian, and he is shocked and appalled at this thing that seems not real, it seems magical and, and fantastic, but still, when he reaches for something to deal with the problem, to deal with his fear, he ends up with the monkey's paw. I mean, you see how this tracks the way the story goes. So there's these little tiny moments that are planted in here, these little tiny seeds that just kind of sit in our heads until another thing happens that echoes that tiny little seed that kind of repeats the same kind of image. And then we feel like, oh, I knew that was going to happen because we had the seed planted. That's the power of foreshadowing. And it's remarkably well done here. And that's the end of part one. Also, notice here how the sort of chapter breaks, they help build suspense. It gives us a moment to pause our reading and think about what's gone on so far and to think, well, there's no way that this can be good. I mean, he sees a monkey face in the fire. Then with Herbert's prompting, with his description of how it's going to happen, we're already thinking of how the wish might come true and how it might go badly. He's also the one who even jokingly said, you know, when, when Mrs. White said, how could the 200 pounds hurt you? He said they could fall on your head. So, you know, there's a joke, but still we're imagining how could this go wrong? But then part two starts and we're given a prime opportunity to blow the whole thing off. Or if we recognize that the short story makes more sense if there is in fact magic in that old monkey paw, we have a chance to see how people can justify their actions and convince themselves that everything will be all right. In the daylight, it's just a shriveled old paw. And how could that possibly be magical, right? Mr. White tells us that the paw makes wishes come true in such a natural way, quote, that you might, if you so wished, attribute it to coincidence. At which point, my skeptical brain thinks, oh, I so wish. No pun intended. The whole story, in fact, could have no magic in it at all, which is another reason for the ending. But we're not there yet. So, how do we get from this delightful sunny morning back into an ominous tone full of foreshadowing? With a reminder of the mystery of the paw, Mr. White tells us again that it moved, and in the middle of the sentence, he asks his wife, What's the matter? So we know that something is wrong. And she is looking at this well-dressed man. It doesn't seem bad. But he's hesitating to come in, which is instantly alarming. Nobody hesitates over good news. Again, Mrs. White directs our thoughts by considering the man's stylish dress in conjunction with the wish. 
But this added to the apprehension makes us wonder what went wrong, right? So we see stylish dress, we think money, but the guy won't come in. He's nervous, he's uncomfortable. And so there's something wrong here. And even, you know, the, the Mr. White interrupted himself and said, what's the matter? So we know that there's something the matter. Part of me wants to say that we're expecting something wrong here because we live in a culture influenced by this very story. And so we expect a bad result of the wish more than the original audience did. But there have always been stories that focus on the unintended consequences of magic, of reaching, uh, you know, overreaching as a human being, of being arrogant enough to wish for something that you shouldn't have that's against the natural order of things. Uh, so other, the people who are in the original audience probably expected it to. Plus, Morris warned us when he was warning the whites. So we know that something has gone wrong. The rest of the scene just falls right into place, but there are some remarkable details. This, the visitor bowed in assent, badly hurt, he said quietly, but he is not in any pain. Oh, thank God, said the old woman, clasping her hands. Thank God for that. Thank. She broke off suddenly as the sinister meaning of the assurance dawned upon her and she saw the awful confirmation of her fears in the other's averted face. So this scene sets it up so that we know what happened before Mrs. White does. And that makes us pity her, dread her finding out the awful news that we already know. It's dramatic irony created in two sentences. It's amazing. Then the next line gives us an image without giving us an image. He was caught in the machinery, the man says. The man from Maw and Megan's, right, where Maw means mouth. The line repeated by Mr. White, caught, gives us a terrible idea of being dragged in, right? The simple word in implying that he was entirely consumed. And then there's this brutal emotional moment. He was the only one left to us, he said, turning gently to the visitor. It is hard. This last line, almost a throwaway, says that they had other children and lost them too. This incredible, awful ordeal is summed up with very British understatement by those last three words, it is hard. And then, after this agonizing heartbreak, we get down to business. And even before he opens his mouth, we know what's coming. Jacobs gives us a perfect example here of how an author builds suspense. They do it all the time, over and over and over again, in the same story, in small doses. Each small build of suspense teaches us to expect more and more. We start looking for suspense, expecting surprises, even theorizing where the next one is going to come from and what it's going to look like. And the more we try to expect what's coming, the more suspense we feel, the more tension that's created that we create ourselves. This one moment gets dragged out over six paragraphs, starting with a man hoping they won't hate him. There's our ominous tone. And now we're like, okay, something bad's coming. And then Mrs. White turns white. No pun intended, I hope. Otherwise, I'm a little disappointed in W.W. Jacobs. Then the man going back to his role as a functionary by stating that the firm denies all liability, a phrase that can't help but precede bad news, right? No one says, I deny all liability. You've won a million dollars. It's always, I deny all liability. Here's a terrible thing. And he drops it on them, the 200 pounds. And they, sorry, I didn't actually mean that pun at all. He, he drops this news on them and they faint. We know it's coming, but it still takes time to get there. 
I appreciate how Jacobs builds that suspense using legalese and the kind of corporate doublespeak that all of us know not to trust, interspersed with these tearful descriptions of the parents in their horror and, of course, guilt. And then he ends the section. But this time we're wondering, what's going to happen now? Do you think we have a guess? I mean, most of us probably know this story, but when it was your first time reading it, did you guess what was coming? At any rate, the third section starts off at the lowest possible point, the cemetery, the funeral, the couple, now turned from parents into old people, falling deep into numbness, unable to move past this. Mrs. White still saying, it is colder for my son, ten days after he passed. Until suddenly, Mrs. White has an epiphany, and then all hell breaks loose. I think the suspense build here is especially interesting, because it's not done with mystery. We know exactly what's going to happen. Or, if not exactly, we know the shape of it. We know that this can only end in horror. The suspense here is done with conflict and reluctance. Mr. White can't let this happen. Mrs. White won't take no for an answer. We surely side with Mr. White. For me, it happens right when he says, Was not that enough? he demanded fiercely. Because, yes, yes, it was enough. You learn this lesson here. But Mrs. White is just as determined, just as eloquent. I mean, it fits so well, right? Because the, the father has learned that to regret his actions, to regret his risk-taking. He took a risk. He made a wish. It destroyed him. But then you have the mother. And I mean, in the classic, you know, cliche, a mother will stop at nothing. Even if it's, you know, even if there's harm done, even if there's danger in it, she will stop at nothing to get her son back, to, to wish her son alive. She'll do it no matter what the price is. She'll pay it for her son, for her only surviving son. Um, but Mrs. White, so she's just as determined, just as eloquent. And then that last page or so when the knocking starts and Mrs. White has her, has her gruesome realization, though she keeps missing the rest of the realization, the, the full implications of what is going on here not quite dawning on her, even as her son pounds away on the door, but never says a word. And also, though she realizes that he needed time to walk from the cemetery, she doesn't realize that he must also have needed to dig his way out of his own grave. And he probably isn't too pleased about it. And then, for our final suspense, for our final tension, there's the race. Will Mr. White get to the paw, or will Mrs. White release the bolt? There's some wonderful nail-biting tension there, with a rapid back and forth between the two characters, the descriptions of both panting, crying, struggling, even screaming, pulling us to the edge of our seats with the energy and the desperation. But then, nothing. There's nothing outside. Was Herbert ever there? Was he monstrous? Or was he perhaps truly resurrected, maybe disoriented, but happy and eager to see his parents until his father wished him back in the grave? For that matter, what exactly did Mr. White wish? And did the monkey's paw curse him with the fulfillment of this wish? Could it be that the ending is the White's punishment? The feeling of never knowing what was out there shared with the audience to help us understand some of what they're going through. The thought that maybe, just maybe, they could have had their son back and they screwed it up, but they'll never know. 
Who can say? All right, so let's talk just a little bit about the story's messages themes. The fakir who enchanted the paw did it because, quote, he wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives and that those who interfered with it did so to their sorrow. He put a spell on it so that three separate men could each have three wishes from it. Okay, fate rules people's lives. What exactly does that mean? What does it mean to interfere with our fate? On the surface, it's pretty straightforward. There's a specific path laid out for us in life, and when we try to change that path, when we try to rebel against our fate, the powers that be teach us a lesson, put us back in our place where we belong. But hold on. What does it mean to try to change our fate? Does that mean we, what, take action? Really? So anything we do is trying to change our fate? Or maybe it's anything we do out of character. That sort of makes sense. But is my fate really tied to my willingness to act in only one very specific way? So, like, I'm an introvert. I always have been. I was very shy in school. I sat in the back of the class, nose in a book for most of my life. But in high school, I joined a band as the singer. Actually, I joined as the drummer, but I'm not a very good drummer, and I am a good singer, so we made the obvious change. And it was great. It was a wonderful experience. Was that changing my fate? I eventually became a teacher, and now I'm sort of the focus of attention every day, which is not fitting for an introvert. Is that against my fate? Does that mean it's bad? Should I not have become a teacher? But I'm a good one. It's not always pleasant. Is that the suffering I earned by rebelling against my fate? And that's an even bigger problem. I don't know what my fate is. So how can I know what to do and what to avoid? Like I said, I'm an introvert, so it seems strange to become a teacher and talk to groups of people all day. But also, I come from a long line of teachers. My grandmother, my great-grandmother, they were teachers and librarians. So maybe that's me returning to my fate after trying to rebel by being quiet and bookish. Maybe I got smacked down and put back into place. Or maybe I should have continued singing and become a rock star. Or maybe if I had done that, I would have suffered. Look at the story. The whites suffer because they wanted to pay off their mortgage. Does that mean their fate was to never own their home outright? Surely at some point they would have earned enough to pay it off. So just trying to do something faster is enough to earn the wrath of fate and kill your last living son by mangling him in a machine until his corpse is unrecognizable? Seems harsh is all. And what about that fakir? He wanted people to learn to never mess with fate. So he made a magical talisman that enables people to mess with their fate? That's mystical entrapment, that is. Maybe if he'd just left well enough alone, the whites would still be living happily with their son. So really, whose fault is all this? Or was it the whites' fate to get the monkey's paw and go through all this? In a certain way, the foreshadowing throughout the story creates that thought, because foreshadowing lays out the path of what's going to happen next. The author knows where the story is going before it gets there and puts down the clues for the reader, which in a way means that the fate of the characters is predetermined and inevitable. Honestly, I think the point is in the ambiguity. We don't know if it's Herbert outside and if he's a zombie or his old self, resurrected perfectly. We don't even know if the paw ever had any effect. Maybe the 200 pounds is just a coincidence. But that's just it. We never know. We never know 
what's down the road for us, what our fate is. We can't know. And maybe that's for the best. Thanks for listening. And remember, don't wish on any monkey paws. Sold it today to one of these long-haired weirdos. You know, high heel boots, beads. Don't you remember the Book of Mystery said it was cursed? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>